0: As we continue to move along in our understanding of Ventil's polemical context, remember that we've talked about what I'm now going to term mutualist personalism. It's also known as Boston personalism, but why would I substitute the mutualist? Here's why. Mutualism and personalism are mutually defining categories. For the Boston personalist, God, as Van Til notes, enters into the flux of time on the inside of it, becomes temporal, and forms a society of divine and human persons. And that society of persons, that society of persons, divine and human, is the mutualist strand in the construction. And in the personalism, the key is that the one person is not one in substance or essence, but only in consciousness. And because of that, the Father is not conscious, the Son is not conscious, the Holy Spirit is not conscious. You don't have a three consciousness in God. You have a one consciousness. And this is a the especially... Um, as you're thinking about Knudsen's reflections. This is Knudsen's conception, and this provides a foil for understanding Van Til. When Van Til is talking about absolute personality, he is denying both the mutualist concern, because God is self-contained, it is not a society of persons, it is a self-contained triune God. And when Van Til's talking about God as an absolute personality, that, remember, is an entailment of the absolute numerical unity of God and the divine simplicity of God where there is one mind, one will, one consciousness, one absolute personality, to use Bavink's language again. But that absolute personality then, if you think in Bobbing's language, has a threefold existence in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so that the movement along the lines of Van Til is to affirm a one-consciousness and a three-consciousness as a direct entailment of the unity of divine simplicity. Personalism is therefore not what Van Til is doing. This is an apologetical opportunity. Now, what I want you to talk, what I want to talk about, and I'm going to put on the other side of the board, is the error of twentieth century what we're going to call neo-evangelicalism in the work of Gordon Clark. Gordon Clark and. So far as we've looked at the personalists, the Boston personalists bring out the notion that God is an absolute supreme person and um, call into question those sharp personal distinctions that inhere in classical reformed orthodoxy. so the problem of the personalists is that God is supreme person and that marginalizes the belief in three distinct subsistencies with incommunicable personal properties, three subsistent relations within the undivided essence are denied. But Gordon Clark moves in the opposite direction with his rationalistic form of neo-evangelicalism, and I want to talk to you about that for a, a while. Theological rationalism, and the Trinitarian theology of Gordon Clark. Let me begin with this observation that Clark has some surprising continuity with the personalists. Um, One reason why is that both the personalists and Gordon Clark are going to display rationalistic propensions in the way that they deal with the Trinity. Let me illustrate the point by discussing Clark's view of apparent contradiction in Scripture and Reformed theology. Clark asks and answers the question, how do we relate divine sovereignty and human free agency? In Van Til's treatment, these two amount to apparent contradictions that can find no ultimately satisfactory resolution in the mind of man. God is sovereign. His decree determines all things, but he has granted man an authentic freedom within the context of that sovereign decree. The self-contained God remains intrinsically incomprehensible to man so that in all of our theological formulations, we face these apparently contradictory Truths, Not truly, but apparently. But Gordon Clark proposes that he can solve the problems of sovereignty and free moral agency. And Van Til notes that um, uh, Gordon Clark can solve certain paradoxes of the faith. In a rather humorous barb, Van Til says that on Clark's view, the mystery of the relationship between sovereignty and free agency is, quote, that the church has so long thought of it as a mystery, end quote. In Clark's estimation, the mystery of apparently irreconcilable truths stems from a failure to think clearly and formulate matters systematically. As one of Clark's titles suggests, God and Evil, the Problem Solved, Clark believes reason is capable not only of offering clarification regarding incomprehensible mysteries, but of actually solving such mysteries altogether. This trend to resolve the apparent contradictions of the Christian faith is a recurring motif in Clark's philosophical theology. In an article in the Clark Festschrift entitled The Theology of Gordon Clark, Roger Nicole notes the tendency in Clark toward a rationalistic resolution of all mysteries and all paradoxes in the Christian faith. Nicole comments on one of Clark's early essays called Determinism and Responsibility, and he says this that Clark proposed, quote, an attempt to solve the age-long problem represented in the title by eliminating the concept of freedom as the foundation of responsibility and asserting flatly that the latter is grounded merely in the fact that God will call man to account at the last judgment. Here's what I want you to note. This isn't a lecture on divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but I want you to note this. The way Clark solved the mystery resolved the apparent contradiction was by eliminating the conception of freedom in favor of the assertion of divine sovereignty. He eliminated the difficulty by denying authentic human freedom. Now that move, that theological proposal, is emblematic of all forms of theological rationalism. Theological rationalism will affirm one central truth and then marginalize or perhaps deny any truths that seem too deeply to conflict with that central truth. In the case of Clark's View of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty is so thoroughly affirmed that in Nicole's language, Clark eliminated the concept of freedom, the concept of authentic human freedom as the foundation of responsibility. For a Calvinist view, it is God's sovereignty that establishes freedom, but that is a true and authentic freedom. But notice. Uh, when Nicole is commenting on this trend in Clark, he brings into view what we could call a rationalistic attempt to resolve theological paradox. That trend comes into view in a work that Clark wrote entitled, quite simply, The Trinity. In that work, Gordon Clark will use our our triangle in a modified form here. You have one God, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Gordon Clark attempted to treat the traditional issues that we've looked at in the Trinity. And it is his most mature reflection on the incomprehensibility of God, particularly as it bears on the essence or usia of God, and the persons, the hypostases, in the Godhead. And the issue that Clark is facing is how logically do we relate the one essence, the one usia of God, to the three persons, or three hypostases, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly and uncharacteristically for Clark, he notes that relating theologically the essence and the persons is, quote-unquote, very complicated. Even Clark recognizes this is an incredibly complicated relationship to delineate. That's a telling remark since Clark recognizes that we're dealing here with quite a mystery when we consider the Trinity. But nevertheless, Clark proposes what, in my view, and in the view of of others who are familiar with the history of Reformed theology, is an incredibly idiosyncratic but fascinating theory of how we relate the essence of God to the persons. And he proposes what we're going to call in the Trinity, this is what sets his work apart he proposes a theory of individuation. A theory of how we individuate and demarcate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in distinction from the one essence of God. And in this, he calls it a qualitative theory of individuation That helps us explain how we affirm one God in three distinct persons. While each person is distinct, Clark asks this question What makes each person distinct? What is it that distinguishes or discriminates the Father from the Son? and the Son from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. What is the traditional, Reformed answer that is given by Hodge, Bavink, and Van Til? Incommunicable personal properties which are relations of personal subsistence. We've seen that, it's review. But Clark says there's a better theory a different theory, a theory of individuation that's summarized in this. Each person in the Godhead is distinguished from the other by what he thinks. By what he thinks. Remember, Clark is a rationalist, and so what discriminates Father from Son, Son from Spirit, and Spirit from Father and Son is what each one thinks. In fact, he says while each person possesses entirely all of the divine attributes, one thinks I or my collection of thoughts is the Father." Another thinks I or my collection of thoughts is the Son. And still the third person says I or my collection of thoughts is the Holy Spirit. And so on. This quote qualitative theory of individuation entails that since the three persons do not have precisely the same set of thoughts, they are not one person but three. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that the principle of individuation is found in discrete thought bundles. I, the Father, am a bundle or collection of thoughts distinct from I, the Son, who are a bundle or collection of thoughts, and I, the Holy Spirit, who am a bundle or collection of thoughts. And so this follows from the most basic axiom in the book. And this is found on page 106 of the Trinity. He says, a person is what he thinks, and no two men are precisely the same combination. Do you hear that? He begins with the individuation of thought among men and projects that to the thoughts among the persons of the Godhead. Reasoning from the distinct bundle of thoughts that discriminate man from man, to the distinct bundle of thoughts that discriminate person from person within the Godhead. Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct or non-identical bundles or combinations of thoughts, they are distinct hypostases. Clark's tendency here, I want you to appreciate, is precisely the opposite of the personalists. Consciousness is found in the three. That's precisely what Knudsen and the Boston personalists wanted to deny. For them, consciousness is found in the one. And those sharp distinctions of persons, rooted in incommunicable properties and subsistent relations were not so clear and ultimately denied. But for Clark, not speaking in terms of traditional orthodox language, a person is what he thinks, whether human or divine. So whether it's human persons being distinguished by a bundle of thoughts or divine persons being distinguished by a bundle of thoughts, what distinguishes is what is thought. Now, here is the question that Clark asks that distinguishes personhood from essence in his Trinitarian theology. And this is found on page 106 in his Doctrine of the Trinity, and I'll read it and then make a comment on it. He says, Is a person to be considered an unconscious Mute substance. And his answer is no. A person, please hear this, is set in logical and antithetical contrast to the conception of substance. Why? Because substance for Clark is unconscious and mute. In Clark's theory of individuation, particularly with respect to the members of the Trinity, it is inappropriate to speak of God's substance as personal because it is unconscious and mute in direct antithetical contrast to the thoughts and consciousness of the persons. So Clark would say it this way, There are not four bundles of thought in the Trinity, four collections of thought. There are only three collections of thought. As a substance or essence, God is not conscious. As a substance or essence, God is mute. As a substance or essence, God must be contrasted with the collections of thought that bring into view personal distinction within the Godhead. So his solution to the mystery of the Trinity rests in his unique theory of individuation. But what is missing here? So much is missing. First, there is no way on this scheme that the sun meaningfully subsists as the entire divine essence in any traditional way. Why? Well, think of this. Were He to do so, the moment He subsisted entirely as the undivided divine essence, the discriminating collection of thoughts would be lost in the unconscious muteness substance there can be no exhaustive subsistence of an individual person an individual thought bundle in the divine essence because to the extent that he subsists entirely his collection of thoughts would be eviscerated within a mute unconscious substance same with the father same with the spirit the idea of Distinct persons subsisting entirely as the divine essence would introduce what we could call a personal, impersonal dialectic, mutually canceling conceptions of personal and impersonal, conscious, unconscious, thoughts, mute person, substance. Built into this conception of Clark's Trinitarian theology is a personal, impersonal dialectic that cancels out and introduces discord into the divine being. To to clarify a bit, The relationship of the hypostases to the essence of God, the relationship of the persons to the essence. What distinguishes the persons from the Godhead or the essence is self consciousness. Mute substance is not what characterizes the persons, that is, collections of thoughts. Collections of thoughts, personhood, is not what characterizes the substance, it's unconscious and mute. And so look at what you start to find in the polemical context that Van Til faced. Whether it's the personalists at the early, uh, turn of the 20th century, moving into the 20s and 30s, or whether it's the developing neo-evangelical Trinitarianism of Gordon Clark in the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s, what do you find? You find an affirmation of unipersonality that calls into question the integrity and personality of the individual hypostases in personalism. Or you find an affirmation of personhood as bundles of thoughts, uh, a novelty in the history of the Reformed tradition, but that's how personhood is defined, but in a way that makes the essence of God unconscious, mute substance. And so, there's an affirmation of one consciousness, a denial of three consciousness in the personalists. There's an affirmation of three consciousness and a denial of one consciousness in the neo-evangelical rationalists. You see, Clark puts it this way. Let me try to put it even more clearly. He says, personality, please hear this, just to let you know that there's no way he can affirm a a personal essence. Listen to what he says. He says, page um, 106, personality requires, among other things, those propositions that are not common to the three. Personality requires those propositions that are not common to the three. Did Bavinck affirm absolute personality as an entailment of numerical unity and divine simplicity? Yes. Did Hodge affirm that there is one will, one mind, one consciousness in a way that peacefully and sweetly complies in mystery with tripersonality? Yes. Did Van Til follow both? Yes. But according to Clark, personality requires only those things not common to the three, and he draws the implication from that that the essence of God is unconscious, mute substance that is antithetically related to personality. See, a necessary condition for Clark, for the possibility of personality, is the presence of propositions not common to the three. So what Clark lacks is a theological principle that can account for the absolute personality of God. And the two things that are missing most in his view, if we were to put the alternative in just small form back before us, is that in the one God, there are 3 relations of subsistence. And there are 3 relations of coinherence. Remember the language that person relates to person. That's the language of coherence person relates to essence that's the language of subsistence and so the relations of subsistence the relations of coherence clark never develops and because of that perhaps the the main problem is that clark doesn't ever address the issues of the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity because he has given us a rationalistic reconstruction of personhood that renders it impossible for God's essence to be personal in even a soft sense. Clark concludes his treatment of individuation by remarking, the discussion of the main problems in the doctrine of the Trinity may now be called complete, even if it is not complete. Other students and scholars may wish to add to, subtract from, modify, or contradict, or alter the foregoing. And he adds that such response would be a great improvement over the present almost universal neglect of the doctrine. Let's take Clark up on that and recognize this. What he tried to do was give us a theory of individuation that accounts for the personal character of each hypostasis within the godhead but because he wasn't beginning with a doctrine of simplicity subsistence or coherence he was never able to arrive at anything other than unconscious mute substance and what does that do that makes these three persons into discrete or separate self-conscious centers. Consciousness, the center of self-consciousness for Clark, is ultimately three. There is an ultimate plurality in terms of self-consciousness. This is a self-conscious center that is separate from these other two the father is a collection of separate thoughts the son a collection of separate thoughts the spirit a collection of separate thoughts and there is no way to unite those three separate bundles of thought no relations of subsistence no relations of coherence. so this risks an ultimately tritheistic error what is the propension of this it is a tri theistic propension. What is the direction of this error? It is a modalistic or sabellian propension. A one consciousness, one person that renders the clear-cut distinctions between the persons and incommunicable properties less than clear. So, Clark is the polar far side of the mutualists in terms of conclusion, but both Clark and the personalists move in the direction they do because they share a common um, propension, a common tendency toward rationalism. To take what is clear, unipersonality for the rationalists, to take what is clear, three bundles of thought for Clark. And then, in the case of the mutualists, call into question tri-personality. In the case of Clark, render the the um, substance of God unconscious and mute. But what happens in both cases is that they deflect from the historic, traditional, old Princeton, old Amsterdam theology of the God who is one and three, and three and one. So the tendencies represented on this board are rationalistic tendencies to the left and to the right of me, right and left of you as you're viewing. And in the center, what do you find? You find old Princeton. You find old Amsterdam. You find the Westminster Confession of Faith. 2, 3, and you find what Van Til was seeking to advocate that in the incomprehensible mystery of the Godhead, there is one God who is an absolute personality And there are three persons who subsist distinctly as that one absolute personality, that one undivided and indivisible essence, who indwell one another in perfectly interior relations of perichoresis and who represent both all of the divine essence and all of each person in the mystery of the ineffable and sublime Trinitarian perichoresis. It is an incomprehensible mystery that evokes worship, but on Van Til's model, as it derives from Old Princeton's reception of the Westminster Confession of Faith 2.3 and on Boving's understanding of Trinitarian theology, this mystery drives us to worship God and worship God in a way that resists the rationalistic tendency to affirm a personal unity without personal diversity or a personal diversity without personal unity the tripersonal god the absolute tripersonal god is found in the confessional tradition of the reformed orthodox not in the mutualistic personalism of nutzen not in the rationalistic neo evangelicalism of Gordon Clark. Both errors are avoided when we think in terms of the Westminster Confession, WCF 2 3, as it's been received by Old Princeton, expounded by Van Til, and supplemented with what he gained in his study from Bavink and from Gerhardus Voss. So this course, we've taken time to give you the constructive, foundational influences on Van Til's Doctrine of the Trinity. We've ended the course by showing you two rationalistic errors that stand on either side of what Van Til is doing. And so please remember this. Van Til cannot be confused with the mutualistic personalism of Baum Breitman, and Knudsen, nor can Van Til be confused with the rationalistic neo-evangelicalism of Gordon Clark. He is instead situated in the confessionally reformed tradition and his apologetic is therefore a function of his doctrine of the Trinity. The representational principle reminds us that the exhaustively personal representation in the Godhead is what underlies a distinct conception of image and covenant and drives the whole of Van Til's Reformed apologetic. And what we'll do in the courses that follow is try to demonstrate now how growing out of this doctrine of the Trinity, you find the distinctive conceptions of image covenant, antithesis, common grace, worldview, and fundamental opposition to Neo-Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and absolute idealism. But all of it, before it departs and engages in those separate and um, diverse areas of study, everything depends on remembering that we are talking about the tri-personal God who is absolute in his triune identity. It is this God that we seek to serve and this God whose name we proclaim and defend as Reformed confessional theologians. and We'll continue to do this throughout the rest of these eight-part courses that we're teaching. as we seek to develop Van Til's Trinitarian theology and apologetic along biblical and Reformed lines of thought.